All right, well, good morning, Crossing. We're in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. I want to start out with a question. I want to start out with a question this morning for you. Would you want to learn to fly an F-16 from a person who has read a lot about it? Maybe, maybe even went to school on how to fly an F-16, but never actually got into the cockpit and flew the plane? Or would you rather be taught by an Air Force Thunderbird pilot? Or how about learn how to hit a baseball? Would you like to learn how to hit a baseball from a guy who's watched 10,000 baseball games but never stepped in the cage and took BP or even hit a ball live? Or would you rather learn from Mike Trout? Well, of course, the answer is obvious. Uh, You and I both would want to sit under the teaching of someone that only has an understanding of the activity, the knowledge of the certain topic, but also someone that has experience, that has that knowledge that they've learned applied into real-life scenarios, i.e. experience. Knowledge plus experience are our best teachers. This is why I love that we're going through the book of 1 Peter because what we're getting is we're getting firsthand knowledge and experience from Pastor Pete, someone that has sat at the feet of the greatest teacher of all time, that of Jesus Christ. In fact, for three years he was under Jesus Christ's teaching. But not only intellectually did he understand it and gain knowledge, but he also experienced that knowledge. He experienced the love, the grace, the mercy of what Jesus taught. He experienced from that from Jesus himself. And not only just in that three-year time, but, but Peter's also writing 30 years after Jesus ascended. So he's had a lot of time. He's an older man here. He has a lot of time where he's applied this wisdom. Everything that he was taught by Jesus, he's actually got to live out in the last 30 years plus. So that's why I love going through 1 Peter, because we're getting knowledge plus experience. And therefore, this morning, Peter gives us four clear commands, and we might say gospel imperatives on how to finish strong and to live a life that it will ultimately glorify our Lord Jesus. And, and as we, before we get into these commands that Peter gives us, we have to remind, remind, uh, remind ourselves that the reason we can live out these commands, the reason, why, uh, the reason we can obey these commands is because by the mercies of God, we have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus. So because we've been born again, because we've been given His Spirit, we now have the ability to obey these commands. And not only the ability, but the desire in our heart. This should be our desire to live out what Peter is commanding us, because these are gospel commands. These are are implications of the gospel, what he is commanding us this morning. And so let's look at these commands. And uh, first we see that we are to pray with clarity. Now before we jump into these commands, we first got to see the context in which these four commands are set. And we see that in verse 7 of chapter 4. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Now what does Peter mean by that? The end of all things is at hand. Uh, Was he preparing for some ancient Y2K deal uh, or some zombie apocalypse? Uh, Was he expecting the world to end in his lifetime? Well, the the answer to that is no. Peter is just letting us know where we are at in the story of redemption, that we are living in the last days. Peter knows that no one knows when the end will come because, again, he sat at the feet of of Jesus and heard in Matthew 24 and also in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus was ascended into heaven, that no one knows the time or the hour. And you shouldn't even bother with that question. So Peter is not making a prediction on when the end is coming. He's just giving us a reference point to where we are in history. The end of all things, or the last days, is the time between Christ's first coming, 
where he came as a suffering servant. He came to live the perfect life in our place. He came to die on the cross for our sin. He rose again to show us that he was truly the Savior and the Messiah, defeating sin, death, and hell. So that was the first coming. And now the last days are now till his second coming, where he comes back as the conquering king. So the second coming is the next major event and last event in the story of redemption is Jesus' second coming, also known as the day of the Lord, as referred to in Joel 2 and other places. So we are this in-between time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That is the last days. And when Jesus comes back as the conquering king, life as we know it is going to be altogether different. It's going to change completely. The consummation will happen, and then he will usher in, Jesus will usher in the eternal kingdom. But until this time, we are in the end of all things is at hand. We are living in the last days, just like Peter. So we might say to ourselves, like, wow, Peter, um, the last days are lasting pretty long here. We're we're 2,000 years from when you wrote this letter. Um, So are we getting any closer? Is the end uh, really at hand? Did you you miss something in the interpretation from the Holy Spirit? And the answer is obviously, no, he didn't miss anything. Um, And yes, we are getting closer to the end of all things that is that to the end of all things that is at hand. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So every day that goes past, we are getting closer to that second coming, to the day of the Lord. <clears throat> also, we also understand that we have to uh, understand that we don't view um, time, we don't experience time the same way Jesus does. Peter gives us insight into this in the second letter. In Second Peter uh, 3 verse 8, he says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So Peter tells us that the Lord, for the Lord, he sees one day as a thousand years, so therefore it's only been two days in, in the Lord's mind, because we've been around 2,000 years. So it's only been two days for the Lord. So that's not obviously a long time. To us, it feels like a long time, but again, to the Lord, it's different because He sees time different than us. So therefore, as we are living in the end of days, as Peter says, He commands us to, to live in a certain manner. There's a certain way in which we should live. And whether you have one day left or 10,000 days left, this is how we should live. And he lays out these four gospel implications for our lives. And what I love about them is they're not flashy. They're not some superhuman commands that we are to follow. They're, they're simple. They're, they're straightforward. Uh, they're common Christian uh, traits of a Christian life. We are to pray. We are to love one another. We are to be hospitable to one another. And we are to be good stewards of the gift that God has given us. So that's the context in which these four gospel implications are set forth. So again, let's look at the first one. First, we should pray with clarity. We should pray with clarity. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. It's, the heart of what it's, it's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in the last days, Peter tells us. And, and Peter's already told us to be self-controlled and sober-minded in, in, in chapter 1, verse 13, where he tells us to gird up the loins of our mind. It means, it means get your minds ready, get them prepared, and then he tells us to be sober-minded. But here, he tells us to be self-controlled and sober-minded, and he focuses on a certain aspect of our life, that of prayer. That we are to be sober-minded and self-controlled and disciplined in prayer. And what does that mean? What, what, what Peter is telling us, it means that 
that we are to make correct assessments of what is happening around us in culture and what we're learning from Scripture. So Peter's saying being self-controlled and sober-minded in Scripture and in the society around you, and then pray accordingly. In other words, pray with clarity and pray with consistency. Uh, Paul is telling, uh, Peter is telling us to pray informed prayers. Make a correct, a correct assessment on what's going around, well, on what's going on around you, and pray accordingly. For instance, we are in the midst of coronavirus, COVID nineteen. So, a part of all of our prayer lives should be informed by what's happening out there in society, and also informed in Scripture. And what, what we should be praying is, we should be praying for the eradication of the coronavirus. We should be praying for those on the front lines and who are serving those who are sick. We should be praying for sound leadership. We should be praying for families that have been affected by the coronavirus, physically, emotionally, financially. In fact, we should be praying First Peter 3, 8, that, that we as a, as a body, as a, as a church, should be unity of mind sympathy, and show sympathy to one another, brotherly love, have a tender heart and a humble mind, especially in these coming weeks as we are getting prepared to come back together. And not only at a local level in our church, but also at a, at a 30,000 view with our country. So we need to be praying with clarity and consistency. And this is what Peter is saying to us this morning. As we live in the last days, our prayers should be characteristic and defined by clarity and consistency. Prayer is, prayer is the greatest gift that God has given us to communicate with the Lord. How we best communicate with the Lord personally is with our prayers. We communicate, speak to the Lord directly, and that is through prayers. We have the maker of heaven and earth that wants to hear from us. And yet, for most of us, prayer is difficult. Prayer is difficult. And there's a number of reasons why it's difficult. I mean, we all know the prayer uh, statistics are, are not in our favor. They're, they're dismal for, for a lot of us. It says the average Christian I read once says, uh, spends about 45 seconds uh, in prayer a day. And that's usually before meals. Now, Hopefully at the crossing, since we, we love God's Word, we're gospel-centered people, we understand the importance of prayer, uh, we're above that uh, curve there, we're above that little stat. We pray more than 45 seconds a day, but we can all admit this morning that we don't pray like we ought to. That prayer is hard. And it was hard for Peter as well. I mean, think about it in Mark chapter 14, back when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Remember, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane right before he gets arrested. He takes his disciples there. He takes Peter, James, and John and goes a little bit deeper into the Garden. He tells Peter, James, and John to sit there and be alert, to watch, be sober-minded. Jesus goes off to pray. He comes back. And are the, as Peter, James, and John, are they, uh, are they watching yeah, they're watching their, uh, inside of their eyelids, right? Because they're, they're sleeping. They're snoring. They're, they're sawing logs, right? And Jesus singles out Peter. He singles out Peter and says to Peter, he says, Why are you asleep? Peter, you need to watch, be sober-minded, and pray. There again, Jesus. He's, Peter is learning and, and, and relaying what he learned from Jesus. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. So prayer was hard for Peter, it's hard for us, and so what we need to do this morning is we need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us self-control and a sober mind in prayer. That we pray um, from the Scriptures and we pray uh, is influenced by our understanding of what's going on in society with clarity and consistency, because again, prayer is hard. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to give us self-control and sober mind to pray and not to fall asleep on Jesus. 
or his people. So that's number one. We are to pray. Secondly, second implication of of gospel implication is we are to love with mercy. We are to love with mercy. Look at verse 8. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sin. And here, Pastor Peter sounds like a broken record with all the New Testament authors because he's telling us to love one another. Imagine that, love one another. Nothing new under the sun. But remember, this is so prominent in in, in Peter's mind and in his life because he was in the upper room with Jesus. He was at the Last Supper with Jesus when Jesus is giving his last teaching to that small new number of disciples in that upper room. And he's saying, hey, I'm about to be arrested, I'm about to die, and then I'm going to ascend, and you guys are going to carry out my mission. And at the heartbeat of my mission is love. Jesus summed up it in John 13, 34, where he says, A new commandment I give you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And so, so Peter here says, above all, above all. That should, that should catch your attention. Above all. Peter's saying this is what's of first importance. This what is matters the most. Listen up. Above all, keep loving one another. So who are we to love? Well, yes, we're, we're called to love those that don't know Jesus. Non-Christians, we're called to love them. But here's Peter is specifically telling us to love one another, to love the church, to love other Christians, to love those in the crossing. This is who Peter is zeroing in on us, and he'll do this in the next three verses, those two words, one another. Again, these commands are for us to exercise to the church, to one another, to other Christians. You see, love is the birthmark of the church. Love is the birthmark that identifies Christians from others. Jesus uh, said in the upper room again, John 13, 35, he says, they will know, non-believers will know, others will know that you're my disciples, how? By the way you love one another. So love is the heartbeat of what Peter heard from Jesus, what he was taught, what he experienced from Jesus, and that he's passing it on to us. This is a truism. This is a, a, a gospel income. Uh, implication that we need to obey. And he says that we are to love. He gives a characteristic of this love. We are to love one another. How? What does it say? Earnestly. Earnestly. Now, when we think of the word earnestly, we think passion. We think strong emotions. I'm going to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And and it it does mean that, but it, it means something even more. So let's drill down a little bit deeper what it means. It means this, to love one another with persistence. It means to persevere in our love for one another. I hear this good biblical term, uh, love steadfastly. Be steadfast in your love. That We, we understand that the, the Christian life is not a sprint, but it's a long-distance release. And it's undergirded by love. Love is not a, a sprint either. It's, it's something that we want to persevere with one another. It's an attribute. It's a characteristic that we are long-suffering with one another. We are steadfast with one another. One commentator, one commentator translated it this way. Remain constant. Remain constant in your love for one another. So this is what it means to love one another, that we, we love one another with a perseverance, a steadfastness, a constant. We love with a passionate commitment to one another. So why, why do we do that? Well, there's a number of reasons why, but again, Peter is zeroing in on, on our reason why. He says we are to love one another earnestly because or since love covers a multitude of sin. That's why we're to love one another, because love covers a multitude, many, much, a plethora of sins. 
So Peter here is focusing on a specific area of love, and that love deals with relational strife. We are to love each other because love covers a multiple of strength. But Peter, Peter's being a good pastor here. Pastor Peter is being a good pastor. He's, he's caring and shepherding us well here because he understands his own heart. He understands how difficult it was to live for three years with those other 11 other guys, Jesus' disciples. He understood how they sinned against each other in their words, in, the, in their deeds. So he understands that it's going to be the same for us. This is why this is so at the forefront for him that, that love covers the multitudes of sin because he knows as we gather together as the church, as we gather together uh, as Christians and loving and serving and around one another uh, for long periods of time, we're going to sin against each other. Again, Peter understood this and he experienced this. Remember, Peter followed Jesus for three years. Do you think he experienced this verse from Jesus? Do you think... Here, here, you're walking with Jesus. He's never sinned, and yet here you are sinning left, right, every single day. And yet, instead of feeling condemnation from Jesus, what did Peter feel? He experienced God's love. He experiences Jesus' love for him. Jesus' love covered a multitude of Peter's sins. And it's the same for us. You see, listen, living in life together in community is going to be hard. And the reason why it's hard It's hard because of you, and it's hard because of me. Life is hard because there are times when you're going to be selfish and I'm going to be selfish. There are times where your pride is going to be, you're going to be walking in your pride, I'm going to be walking in my pride. And when that happens, nothing good happens. What happens is sin. Sin happens against one another. And Peter is saying, when that happens, we execute love. We love one another. So can we just be honest in here that, it's going to be hard to live in community with one another because of our own pride, because of our own selfishness, etc. We are going to fall short. Can we be honest in here? And man, don't, don't you love this? All right, in two, in, in two points, we're, we're confessing our sin all over the place. <laughs> Isn't that good stuff? This is just a good sermon on confession today. One, we, we confess we don't pray enough, and two, we profess we don't love enough or love well. And this is what it means to be a part of a gospel-centered church, that we can, we can freely admit our faults because that gives opportunity for the gospel to come in and build us back up. It gives us opportunity to encourage one another towards love and into the gospel all the more. And so Peter knows this, and he says that this is the beauty and the power of love, is that it covers a multitude of sin. It helps us in our relational strife. And he's playing off of Proverbs 10, verse 12, that wisdom literature in the Old Testament of Proverbs, where it says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And then maybe he even remembers Paul and his teachings in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Maybe he read that letter where Paul says that love keeps no records of wrongs. You see, this is actually what it means to cover sin. This is how love covers sin. It, it, love forgives. Gospel love forgives. And so to cover means to forgive or keep no record of wrong. Again, go, go back to Peter's experience uh, with Jesus, what he was taught and what he experienced. In Matthew chapter 18, Peter specifically asked Jesus a question. It says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brothers who sin against me? So here's Peter. Again, he's, he's walking with these 11 other 
disciples, apostles. This is probably about maybe two years into Jesus' ministry. There's a, so there's been a lot of life. These guys have been around each other every single day for, for you know, maybe two years or so. They have their own personalities. They have their own um, ways in which they think things should be done. And in that, they have sinned against one another. So Peter asks this question. He's like, man, I'm getting sinned against left and right by, by all my, uh, uh, my friends here, the other disciples. So how many times, how often should I forgive them, Jesus? And, and Peter says, as many as seven times? Now, the reason why that number is so important, the ESV Study Bible points out that within Judaism at the time, if you forgave someone three times, you were doing a pretty good job. So if, if, if you sinned against me three times and I forgave you three times, then that's what I was required to do. So a fourth time, well, maybe you might not be getting forgiveness. And so what Peter is doing here is like, man, if I feel, <clears throat> if I've been sinned against three times, I'm, I'm doubling up right now plus one. I'm not just forgiving them three times. I'm forgiving them three times plus three times plus another one on top. The one is the cherry on top. So I'm, so I'm doubling up plus one. I'm, do, I'm going above and beyond what is required of me. And he's probably waiting for Jesus to be like, man... Well done, Peter. You're, you know, you're knocking it out of the park. All those other disciples, they're losers because they're not doing that. But you, you're doing a great job. That's what he's expecting to hear from Jesus. Is that what he hears? No. What he hears from Jesus is keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. Jesus says, I do not say to you 70 to- or seven times, but 70 times seven. And again, the, the object isn't here. Now let's calculate the let's, you know, calculate the number um, and see what he, the end number is. No, he's just using this as saying, hey, we should, we should just continue to forgive without keeping count. Continue to forgive without keeping count. Because that's what true disciples are. True disciples of Jesus are to forgive without keeping a record. Love keeps no records of wrong. Now, with that, that's what Peter experienced. That's what he was taught. That's what he experienced. But, but we, we look at the other, way, uh, the other teachings in the, in the New Testament, and there's two ways that we respond to sin. There's two ways that we respond to sin. One, we can respond this way with, with, in, in, in exercising this principle. Love covers a multitude of sin. Usually when Rita and I do premaritals, we, this is one of the verses that we, we highlight because um, that relationship um, is, is, is one that you're probably going to be the most sinful in because you're around each other the most, the, the husband-wife relationship. Rita and I are constantly around one another, so therefore we're, we're going we're to sin against each other more than we sin against anyone else. And in that moment, we have two options. When I sin against Rita, when I say something that's hurtful or when I do something that's hurtful, she has two options. Her first option is she can exercise this principle. Hey, man, and, and, and to herself, I don't need to bring this up. Aaron hurt me, but I know his heart. He's just having a bad day. Love covers it. My love covers what he just did against me. And she forgets about it. And then she goes around her day, and she, and she can't bring it up because it's, it's been covered. It's been forgiven. That's one way. If there's something that I do that she can't forgive, then she comes to me and be like, Aaron, that, that was hurtful. And, then that, and, and now that gives me an opportunity to be like, oh, babe, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And that gives her an opportunity then to extend forgiveness. So those are the two ways that, that whatever relationship it is, when you feel sinned against, those are the two options that you have. Love can, call, can cover that sin, and you can forgive that person, forget about it, and don't, you don't have to bring it up. Or if you can't do that, then you go ahead and bring it up and give them the opportunity. So love covers a multitude of sin. And again, here's the thing. You and I are going to get to exercise and obey this, this command probably sometime today. Sometime later on in the day, before the day ends, with your, your, your spouse, with your kids, uh, with your, 
your siblings, you're going to be able to exercise this gospel imperative, this gospel command, that love covers a multitude of sin. And not within our own little family, but oh, how we are going to be able to exercise and obey this command in the coming days and weeks together as we start to come together again as a church body in life groups and on Sunday gatherings. We're going to get to exercise this. Why? Because we're all in different places. And, and, and here's what's going to happen. We're going to sin against each other because we are all in all different places. You know, some put it like this. There's 5% of our country that's saying we're all going to die because of the coronavirus. There's 5% of our country that is saying that this is all a government conspiracy. It doesn't, you know, it's all made up. And then there's 90% of us or in this country says, man, I just want to get a haircut and I don't have to worry about getting arrested, right? That's all of us. Uh, I want to take my family to a restaurant and, and sit down with them and, 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 f- and eat good food and have good fellowship with them. Uh, there's some of us who be like, man, I really want to get together, but I'm a little nervous on what that's going to look like. You see, we're all in different places. And, and, and we're probably going to sin against each other as we come back together. So can we do this? Can we do this as a church? Can we do this for one another? Can we be proactive? Can we be preemptive in our hearts? Can we start to think about, hey, when I know when we're going to get, to be, get back together, someone's going to rub me the wrong way. And, and at that moment, prepare your hearts to extend love, to cover their sin against you. Because here, well, here's why. This is why love is so important, because love will protect you and love will protect me. Love will protect my heart from pride. It will protect your heart from pride and anger and frustration starting to, to well up and bitterness when that person sins against you. And so when we, we exercise loving one another, that our love will cover their sin, we're, we're actually protecting our hearts. And then not only that, but that, that, that protection then overflows to we're actually protecting the church. We're protecting the crossing church. And so can we do that together? Can we, can we be proactive right now? And, 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 and be filled and ask the Spirit to, to give us that fruit of love when we come against each other in relational strife, when we, when we do sin against each other, that we can exercise this principle. Hey, man, love covers a multitude of sin. So let's not get bitter. Let's not get frustrated. Let's not get angry. Don't let that take a foothold in our lives, but instead let us love and forgive. Love and forgive. Well, third. So we've seen a, a couple other uh, gospel uh, imperatives. One, uh, uh, to pray with clarity, to love with mercy. And thirdly here, we are to show hospitality without complaining. To show hospitality without complaining. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. How about that? What a time to talk about hospitality, right? In the midst of coronavirus. But here we are, and before us, Peter is commanding us to show hospitality to one another. To the church. There it is again. Show hospitality to one another. So he's dialing into us as a Christian church. And again, this is something that we are to obey. And it's, it's all over the New Testament, living in, in, in hospitality and showing hospitality to one another. Peter says it, but not only Peter, so does Paul in Romans 12, 13, where he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek, Paul says, to show hospitality. See, hospitality in the ancient world was uh, for travelers would be traveling and they would rely on strangers, friends, relatives, or, or other Christians to provide lodging and food as they would travel to a city, spend the night, get, 
And in general, uh, they, they, they didn't go to hotels or inns because those were sketchy. They weren't safe. Uh, a lot of times that's where criminals would just kind of hang out and take advantage of those that were traveling in, as well as to be a place of drunkenness and, and immorality. So staying at the Holiday Inn Express would, was not so much of a holiday back then. But again, here Peter is, is causing us to focus our attention on one another, on showing hospitality to other Christians, uh, the local church, the Christians that you're living with. And today we, we tend to think of hospitality as a gift that someone has in the church, that, uh, that my wife Rita, she has the gift of hospitality, but I personally don't have the hospitality gift. That's how we kind of think of it. But what Peter and Paul is saying is that hospitality is a command for all Christians to follow. And yes, some have a, a greater grace in hospitality, but we're all to participate in hospitality, and we're to do it without grumbling or complaining. And so what, before we even think about the action of hospitality, inviting someone in, uh, Peter says here to help protect us is it, it begins in the heart. Our, our, our hospitality begins in the heart. It's a heart issue uh, because this is how we look at it, to, to battle grumbling or complaining. Because again, Peter is just being a good pastor here. He understands the difficulties, the challenges that is associated with hospitality. Hospitality is hard. We don't always feel like being hospitable. And that's why it begins in the heart, to, to guard against grumbling and complaining. This is, this is how we guard it with the gospel. We guard it with the gospel by thinking this, because God love towards us in Christ Jesus. Because God has loved us through Christ Jesus, His kingdom was opened up to us. He opened up His home to us. He showed hospitality to us first and foremost. He invited us into His kingdom through Christ. Therefore, since God loved us first, we are to love others. Since God showed us hospitality first, we should show hospitality to one another. That's the motivation. That's why it's a heart motivation. Uh, this is the gospel implication, and this is why we do it without, uh, without grumbling or complaining, because we understood that as we were enemies of God, He opened up the doors and brought us in and showed us hospitality. How much more should we do that to one another as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ? And here we go. For, for, for the crossing, when I first planted the crossing, and this I wanted to be a major, major pillar of the crossing that people would experience gospel hospitality, that they would tangibly feel uh, being welcomed here at the crossing. And by God's grace, you and others that have come before us the last 10 years have executed this so well. The reason why, one of the reasons why I believe the crossing is still around is because of this principle, because you have obeyed this well. The Holy Spirit has, has, has shed abroad the love of God in your hearts. And so whoever walks through that door, you are being hospitable. You are being welcoming. You are being friendly. You are being authentic. And, and, and when they come in, they, they feel that, especially visitors for the first time, uh, um, when, uh, when us pastors, when we do our covenant partnership, and you guys have been in a lot of those classes, you, you know that one of the first things you hear, like we ask the question, like, why, why, why do you call the cross in your home? Why do you kind of plant yourself here? One of the first reasons why they always say is because of the hospitality, because they felt loved. They felt welcomed. It, it felt like home to them. They didn't see a lot of people out there pretending. It was, it was authentic. And so great job on, on Sunday mornings on, on showing hospitality and being welcoming. Then it filters down to our, to our life groups and our journey groups. And again, we understand that, man, opening up your home is hard. 
So again, if you have opened up your home and for life groups or any kind of other crossing event in the past or you're doing that now, man, thank you. Uh, as pastors, we want to thank you because we understand how hard that is. I do personally. I mean, my, lo- my wife, Rita, she loves the, to have people over. We've been, we're going to celebrate 25 years of marriage, and it seems like when we said, I do at the altar, you know, the next three days, we've had, since then, we've had thousands of people at our house almost every single day of every single week, right? Now, obviously, that's a little exaggeration, but, but we've had uh, uh, thousands of people come through our house and, and host them. That's, a, that's my wife's passion. And, and we want people, to, when they walk through our doors, in particular my wife, she wants them to feel welcome. And she wants them to feel loved. She wants them to feel that this is a place where they can come and be themselves. She wants it to be a place of hospitality. But here's one thing I want to, again, just point out. Again, hospitality um, is important. And the, and, 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 and the primary reason why it's important, because, it's, again, it's a heart issue. So what's most important in hospitality when you host people in life groups or journey groups or something else is not that your house is clean, although that's a benefit, or not that you have the best food. What, what matters is, again, it begins in the heart, that, that, that we open up our doors because we want people to feel loved. We, wanna, we want people to feel like this is a place where I can go uh, and, and be heard, um, you know, your house doesn't look, have to look like it's, you know, going to be on the next show of HGTV. It's okay. In fact, it's, it's probably even best if when someone comes to your house and they actually see dishes in the, in the sink or, 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 or folded clothes on the table because that's real life, right? That's real life. Now, is it good to have a clean house and no dishes in the sink and clothes on the table? Yes. But again, the, the, the point is, is that it begins with the heart, the motive of the heart. And then it continues in every day outside of Sunday mornings, life groups, journey groups, that, that people host people. And they're, they're in, in, in the daily needs of life, they're throwing parties, birthday parties, graduation parties. They're, they're having all kinds of celebrations of, of, of pregnancies, etc. You're just having movie nights and games night. Hospitality is, is what it means to be a Christian, that we are to do life together. Now, again, we've, we're at this safer at home here at the cross, we're now to gather, you know, 10 people or less. And so, um, again, we just need to, again, with love, um, understand that we're just not going to open the doors and invite, say, everyone now go back uh, and join and jump into life groups and, and be full swing. Because we understand that, that people are at different, different areas of, of, of comfortability, of where they're at, of, of rejoining hospitality and getting together in smaller groups. So um, I know there's a lot of you that are itching uh, to get back into this group and go full steam ahead. But again, let's, let's, let's be loving uh, and be mindful that, that people are in different places. And so let's kind of you know, take baby steps to get back into hospitality. But let's get back, in, let's get back into community. Let's get back into um, the idea of opening up our homes and, and doing life together. So that's third. We are to show hospitality without complaining. And fourth, we are to, to be good stewards of God's gift to us in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And what we see in these two verses, we see at least three, two, three truths. One, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Every Christian has a spiritual gift, and it's a gift that you receive. Notice, as each of you has received a gift, this is a gift that you receive when you repent and believe in Jesus. You see, sometimes we think that we think our gifts is how God has wired us since birth. 
Um, and we think that, oh, that's how I'm wired. I'm an A-type personality, so that's the gift that God has given me. But, but Peter and even Paul, where he talks about God's gifts, are, are not necessarily talking about that here. You see, you can be a non-Christian and have an A-type personality. That's part, of being, that's part of common grace. You're born that way. That's part of common grace. God has wired you a certain way. This gift is a little bit different. This is something that you receive from God when you repent and believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes and empowers you to live out certain gifts. Now, it might and usually does complement or enhance how you're wired so that you can be more effective in your gift. And so they are kind of similar, even though they're separate. So again, first, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Second, whatever that gift you have, what does it say? As you have received the gift, what are you called to do? Use it. You're called to use it to serve, again, those are two words again, one another, as stewards of God's varied grace. I love this. When Paul talks about using gifts, he used the body, body as an analogy, right? We're, we're one body but many different parts. Well, here, Peter uses the color chart. He uses color. That's what that word varied means. Some of your translations might say manifold or various. It's, it, it means many colored. One, one pastor put it this way. Peter is painting a picture. He's saying the many colored grace of God. The, the grace of God. This is what your gifts are like. They're like, they're like multiple colors. We all have different gifts. And we, that means we all have different colors. If you, if you shine the grace of God through the gift you get through one person, you might get blue. You shine the same grace through another person, you might get green or yellow or purple. And someone that has, you know, maybe a, um, an extra measure of a certain grace, they might get like polka dot blue or something along that. It's like, oh man, they really got the, the gift over there. But isn't that a good image? That's the body, that, that the crossing is painting a picture to the world outside. And here's the thing. The reason why the crossing is the way it is is because many of you have been using your gifts and here, uh, Peter says there's, there's two general gifts. There's serving gifts and there's speaking gifts. And we have people that have been gifted uh, when they've come to know Jesus, and, and they use both. Some, some are good communicators and speak, and some are great servants. And, and you've been doing that well. But as we paint the picture, we don't just want three-quarters of our body using the gifts and, 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 and painting in the picture. We want full participation. If you're part of the crossing, we need you to use your gifts here to not only bless one another in the church, but then also to, it's going to help declare the beautiful picture of the gospel. And without it, there's, there's something missing in our picture. Uh, it might be not as bright. Um, it might be a little bit dull because your gift is not there. Your color hasn't been added to the picture. And we'll see that. They'll, they'll see that void on the painting. So we need everyone to participate. So we, we present the most vibrant, most joyous, most beautiful painting of the gospel that we can portray as the crossing church. And so that's the, the second thing, that whatever gift you have, you use it. You use it. And then third, some gifts are more upfront and noticeable, like speaking gifts, than others like serving gifts. But all of them, hear this, all of them are vital and all of them are beneficial. All of them are vital, and all of them are beneficial. And all of them are empowered by God's strength. All of them are empowered by God's strength. And so these, these, these are the three gifts. That every Christian has a spiritual gift, and that whatever you have, you use it. And three, that they are vital and beneficial, and especially in time. Vital and beneficial. I want you to think about it. In the time that we're at, yeah, it's important to have people that are leading and, and, and speaking, but the people that really shine in a time of crisis are those who serve. 
That's who really shines, is those that, that, that serve. That who, that's who comes to the forefront in the times of crisis like we're in now. It's people that roll up their sleeves, they want to get their hands dirty, and they want to come alongside people and they want to serve, and they use their gifts in a number of ways. Again, just this week on Realm, the, the, the ladies that, that make masks, I just, I just really want to highlight this. And, and there's many ways, other ways in which people are using and serving their gifts. But we had someone say, hey, got on Realm and said, hey, you know, our medical community needs more masks. Can, can, can any ladies, you know, make a couple extra masks? And, and we had all of our ladies, boom, 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 got it, done. We're going to get it done. How many do you need? When do you need them by? All right, we're on it. That, that's... That's what comes to the cream that rises to the crop are those who serve in times like this. And so again, this, this is the, the three aspects of serving, uh, of using, or being good stewards of God's gifts. One, that you have a spiritual gift. Two, that you use your spiritual gift. And three, that, that all gifts are vital and beneficial and empowered by God's Spirit. Finally, Peter ends in verse 11. In order that in everything, in everything, in everything we just talked about, prayer, love, hospitality, and stewardship in everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I just want to put an amen on this. So we want to be a church that glorifies God. How are we going to be a church that glorifies God? By by executing these gospel imperatives, these gospel commands that we that we first pray that we're informed by Scripture and by society, and we pray with a, with a consistency and a clarity. Uh, that we love, that we understand that we're going to sin against one another, and, and our best uh, characteristic on how to combat that sin is love. Love covers a multitude of sin. That, that we show one another hospitality. That we, that we open up our lives, we open up our doors to one another, and let people come in and see who we are in Christ. And then finally, we use the gifts. We, we are good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. If we do that, again, we're not going to do that perfectly, but, but if these four, four gospel imperatives lead and direct us, and as we pursue and try to obey them, the Lord will be glorified and we will receive much joy. So again, in order that everything, prayer, love, hospitality, and stewardship, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, just thank you for Pastor Peter and his heart for us. Man, he, he shepherds us so well. And Lord, I just, again, I, I just remind us that the reason why we can live out these gospel implications is because you first were hospitable to us. While we were at enemies, you died for us. You sent your son Jesus to live the perfect life in our place, to die on the cross for our sin, and he rose again, and he invited us in. Come, those who are heavy laden, who are weary, and who need rest. Come rest in the hospitality, the love, and the mercy, and the grace of God. Lord, may we do that together. And may we, be, and may we paint a picture of gospel love, of gospel joy, to a world outside these church walls as we walk together in this crisis in COVID-19. May the crossing paint a picture of hope, peace, and love. Again, we can only do this as we are empowered by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.